Rising sun to the setting, same I will praise your name. Great is your faithfulness to me. Well, good morning, everyone. Great to be here with you this morning. My name is Dan. I'm our college young adults pastor here at PBC. And uh, in that role, I had the opportunity last weekend to go with about 30 young adults up to Tahoe and spend a few days up there. We got dumped on. Uh, it was amazing. We had a, a, an excellent time skiing, playing in the snow. Uh, some people made this snowman here. Um, this uh, apparently is me and my three children uh, on the hand railing there. So I don't know if there's a resemblance or not. Uh, but there was a lot of snow and there was uh, a lot of fun. We had a great time together. In, uh, in a lot of ways, that weekend was for me a mountaintop experience. I mean, there, there were moments literally of being on top of the mountain skiing. That was fantastic. But it was, it was also a, a mountaintop experience of community. Just to, to be together, uh, to eat together, to talk together, to play together. There was just so much rich community that was happening in that group uh, over that weekend. Uh, for me also, it, it was a kind of mountaintop experience as a pastor. Just, just to be able to sit back and, and to watch all that God has been doing in our community. It was so fun to see the way that people listened to each other, loved each other, cared for each other, helped dig each other's cars out of the snow over and over and over again. Uh, it was just amazing to see what God ha has been doing in our community. And uh, we've all had these kind of mountaintop experiences, right? We, we've had these, these experiences that are, are full of joy and excitement, of purpose, where, where we feel like we're kind of experiencing the best of life. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, we've had these mountaintop experiences of faith also. I know many of you have had these experiences. Maybe, maybe it was a time when, when you were younger, uh, maybe in middle school or high school, and you, you went on a trip, on a retreat or a mission trip or something, and you had this, this moment where God became real in a way that he hadn't been before. Or, or maybe for you, it was in your college and young adult years. Maybe you didn't grow up going to church, and, and now you heard the gospel and you responded to it, and you, you came to, to know God for the first time, and that was exciting. And you were excited to be sharing your faith and, and reading the Bible and growing and all of these things. I know many people have had these kind of mountaintop experiences of faith right here on our campus, here in this room as we worship together, or maybe elsewhere around campus as you're serving in ministry or just spending time in your community. We've all had these mountaintop experiences. This morning, we're going to look at a mountaintop experience. We're going to be in the gospel of Mark, and we're going to look at a story that really is the mountaintop experience in the gospels. We see Jesus literally on a mountain with three of his disciples, and what happens on that mountain is amazing. I mean, it's ridiculous what we're going to see happen there. It's this mountaintop experience. And as we look at this experience that Jesus shares with his disciples, we're gonna think a little bit about the mountaintop experiences that we have or maybe that we don't have. What is the purpose? What's happening there? How are we supposed to think about these kind of moments in our lives? 
We're in the second week of our Lenten series as we move towards Good Friday and Easter. Uh, and we're in a series called Suffering Servant, Conquering King. We're looking at these passages in Mark along with five or so other churches in the area. Uh, and it's these kind of walking from about the halfway point in the gospel towards the cross where we really see these two themes show up over and over again. Jesus as both the suffering servant and the conquering king. And in the passage that we're gonna look at today, the passage of the transfiguration in Mark 9, we're gonna see Jesus as the conquering king. But we're also gonna see how that ties in with his role as the suffering servant. That, that these two things are actually, actually intimately and closely connected. So we're gonna be in Mark chapter nine, verses two through 13. Let's start by looking at the first couple of verses. Mark nine, starting in verse two. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. Now I, I wanna pause right there just to kind of remind us a little bit of the context. It says, after six days, well, six days before this was that first conversation that Jesus had with his disciples that we looked at last week, where he predicted, he told them in very clear terms that he was going to suffer, that he was going to die, and that he was going to rise again from the dead three days later. After that, he tells the disciples that if they are going to follow after him, if they are going to follow in his way as his disciples, that they also must lay down their lives pick up their cross and follow him. He's outlined that this path of suffering that includes, this path of discipleship that includes walking in the path of suffering like Jesus did. And now it's been six days and the disciples were probably talking a little bit about this. What, what does this really mean? What, what, what is he talking about? How is this gonna happen? What does that look like? And they've got more questions than answers. And so we come again to Mark 9, pick it up again in verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared with them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus." It's a remarkable picture of what takes place on that mountain. It's a remarkable set of circumstances. Jesus takes three of his disciples up on this mountain. And even right there, if you've been uh, here for the, the series in Exodus that we've been going through, if you're just familiar with the story of Exodus, this is maybe sounding a little bit familiar. In the story of Exodus, we see God calls Moses to meet with him up on top of a mountain. Here we have Jesus taking three of his disciples up on a mountain. And Moses is gonna show up on that mountain. We're supposed to be thinking about the book of Exodus. We're supposed to be thinking about God giving the law, God revealing himself and his, his will for his people more fully than he ever had before. And we see as we think about that, that, that this is holy ground. That, that this is a special moment that's happening on this mountain. We read that, that Jesus was transfigured. It's the word metamorpheo, where we get the word metamorphosis, to be changed or transformed. 
The way that Luke talks about it in his gospel, he says that Jesus' face was altered, that something about his physical appearance itself was changing. And then he's just radiating light. He's glowing. His clothes are just whiter than, than anyone could bleach them. What's going on here? What's going on here? God is pulling back the curtain. God wants these three disciples to have a picture of the true glory of Jesus. And so he pulls back the curtain and the glory of Jesus just shines forth. This glory that Jesus had before he, he took on flesh and became a man, the glory that Jesus would once again have when he rose from the dead, this amazing, miraculous glory of Jesus shines through just for a moment here as God pulls back the curtain. He, he, he wants these men and he wants us to see the glory of Jesus. You know, when Jesus was born as a baby, in a, a smelly stable, laid in a dirty manger, he didn't look very glorious. As he lived and worked in his father's carpenter shop, he didn't look very glorious. As he goes about his life and his ministry and he, he's caring for the poor and he's working with the oppressed, he, he didn't look very glorious. And as Jesus walks to the cross, as he suffers and is beaten and mocked and abandoned, he didn't look very glorious. But, but here on this mountain, God, God pulls back the curtain he, and he lets the glory of Jesus shine through. I wonder if, if you've had one of these moments where God pulls back the curtain. If you've had one of these moments where, where you, you, you've come to learn something new about God or, or you've had an encounter, an experience with him that, that, that's full of power and it's real and it's tangible. I remember this, this moment when I was in high school, I was on a, a four day long canoe trip with the student leadership team of my youth group. And uh, I, I remember it so clearly. I, I was sitting on this, this boulder in the middle of the woods with my Bible and a journal and it was like, God is here. <laughs> like there's, there, there's something happening here. Like I, 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 I could sense God's presence in a way that was more real than I had before. And, and it was this moment where, where, where God pulled back the curtain and, and he touched me in a unique way. I, I wonder if, you, if you've had that kind of moment where God pulls back the curtain and you come to learn something new or relate to God in a new way. A few years ago, there was a young man who was coming to YAF, our Young Adult Fellowship. His name was Scott. He was a Stanford grad student at the time. And Scott didn't grow up in a family of faith. He, he didn't know the Lord. Um, and he had been through some really difficult times, some really dark times. And he found himself in, in the midst of one of these really dark times. And he honestly just wasn't sure if he wanted to keep going. And so he, he, he tells about this, this time when he, he was laying on his bed and just called out to God, God, if you're real, show up, right? show yourself to me. And he says well, what happened after that as he was laying there is his whole body began to be warmed from the inside out, like he was just radiating heat. And he, he was laying in his bed and he was so overwhelmed that physically he couldn't move. And, and 
as he tried to describe really what, what was going on, the only way he could describe it was to say it was pure love. Like, like I just had this experience of pure love from the Father right into the very core of my being and I just knew that God was real and I knew that he loved me. God just pulled back the curtain. He said, said I want you to see my glory. I want you to see my love. For Peter, James, and John, he pulls back the curtain and the glory of Jesus shines through. And I pray that each and every one of us would have some moments in our lives, in our discipleship to Jesus, where God would pull back the curtain, where he would allow us to see Jesus as he truly is, to see, to see him, him in glory, to experience his power, to experience his victory in our lives. I pray that we would be able to experience that as we see happening on this mountain. They're standing on the mountain, Jesus is glowing, his face has changed, and then Moses and Elijah show up. Right? And if things weren't weird before, now they're really weird. Right? These are two dead guys. Like, what are they doing here? Well, we don't know, you know exactly how they were there, and it's kind of beside the point. Was this like a brief resurrection for a moment? Where did they go from there? Is this more of a, an illusion or, or a vision or something like that? Those questions are a little bit beside the point. And what we see and what's clear by the presence of these two men, two of the most significant figures in the Old Testament, is the reaffirmation that this is indeed a special moment. Right? That, that something significant is happening here on this mountain. I wonder how, how you would respond if you were there. Right? What would your response be if you were witnessing this? How have you responded in those times when God has shown up in your life in a unique and powerful way? Well, we're gonna see how Peter responds as we keep reading, picking up in verse five. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. This is like a classic Peter moment, right? Peter so often just speaks up when he should just stay silent. And, and so here it is again, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Yes, Peter, yes, it, it, is, it is good that you are there. What, what's happening on that mountain is, is good. It's deeply good in the deepest sense of the word. It is good to be with Jesus on the mountain. If you've been there, you know. Rabbi, it is good that we are here. And then Peter keeps going. <laughs> he should have stopped there, but he keeps going. He's like, hey, let's build some tents, right? One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. What, what's going on with these tents? Well, scholars have talked a lot about kind of what's going on here. I think there's two main, main possibilities. One is that this is an allusion to the, the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. It's a time uh, each year when the people of Israel would construct these temporary shelters, these tents. They, they would live in them as, as a reminder of their time wandering in the wilderness just after the Exodus. And so if this is what Peter's doing, it's, it's like he's calling for a second Exodus. He, he's remembering that, that great act of deliverance and, and he's longing, even calling for another act of deliverance, this time not from the people of Egypt, but from Rome. You know, he, he, he sees that Jesus is a conquering king. He sees his power and, and he says, maybe this is the moment when he's gonna step up and take the throne. That, that might be what Peter's doing. 
The other thing he might be doing is just saying, hey, I wanna hold on to this moment for a while. Maybe if I could build a shelter, even just a temporary shelter, maybe we could stay here for a while. Maybe we could just sit in this moment for a little bit. Either way, it's basically the same motivation behind both of those. He, he's on the mountain with Jesus and he recognizes that the mountain, being on the mountain with Jesus is a good place to be. He, he's seen the glory and the power of Jesus and he's come to realize something new about God or realize it in a more profound way, which is that, that his God is a God of the mountaintop. He says, my God is a God of the mountaintop and I, I, I wanna be on this mountain with God. I wanna be on this mountain with God. But here's the thing, while he firmly believed that Jesus was the conquering king, he did not fully grasp, nor did he probably want to accept that Jesus was also the suffering servant. Because he knew that, that if Jesus is both conquering king and suffering servant, then that means that in my discipleship to Jesus, though I will conquer and experience glory and triumph, I will also suffer. And Peter didn't want to suffer. Right? He, he was on the mountaintop and he wanted to stay on the mountaintop. And, and wouldn't you also, right? When, when you're in that moment, is there anything that, that want, that in you that wants to come out of that? Wouldn't you rather just stay there with Jesus on the mountaintop, experiencing joy and excitement and fulfillment and purpose? Right? We serve a God of the mountaintop and sometimes we just wanna stay on the mountaintop. And so Peter seems to be hoping that maybe he could stay there. Interestingly, this is the same temptation that Satan brings to Jesus when he's in the wilderness. He, he brings Jesus up on a high mountain and, and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he says, these can be yours if you will just bow down and worship me. He was offering Jesus the opportunity to be the conquering king without the suffering servant. He was offering him the opportunity to have the glory without the pain. And do you know what Jesus said? Be gone, Satan. He said, that is not why I came. That is not the path that I will walk. See, Peter wanted to stay with Jesus on the mountain, but Jesus would not stay on that mountain because if he stayed on that mountain, he knew that we would be stuck in the valley. And he said, that's not, that's not the way this is gonna work. I'm not staying on this mountain. I'm gonna come down off of this mountain. I'm gonna walk into suffering. I'm gonna allow myself to be beaten. I'm gonna allow myself to be mocked. I'm gonna allow myself to be nailed to a cross so that you don't have to stay in the valley. It's amazing to be on the mountain with Jesus. But Jesus didn't stay on the mountain. And we also cannot stay on that mountain. Jesus calls us to step down off the mountain, to step into suffering, to be with him in his suffering as he is with us in our suffering. Why does all this happen? What's, what's the point here? Why, why does Jesus bring his disciples up on the mountain in the first place? It's because he has a message for them. He, he wants them to understand something. He wants us to understand something. And we see this 
in, in what happens after Peter's response. Looking in verses seven and eight. And a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And it's almost like as quickly as all of this began, it also comes to an end. Moses and Elijah disappear and the disciples are left standing there with only Jesus. God had a message for them on that mountain. He said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. This is my beloved son, listen to him. Jesus didn't bring his disciples up to that mountain so that they would have a great story to tell their friends when they got down. He didn't bring them up on that mountain because they just needed a a shot of spiritual adrenaline so that they could keep going in their discipleship with Jesus. Jesus called them up on that mountain so that they could be there with him, eyes fixed on him, and hear the voice of the Father say, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Listen to him. Really, the whole Christian life, The whole task of discipleship to Jesus, of following after him, walking in his way, it starts here. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. Are you listening to Jesus? You know, that's a difficult question to answer sometimes, isn't it? I mean, how do we listen to Jesus? What what does that even look like to do that? How do we know if we're listening? How do we go about trying to listen? That can even be a little bit of of an alienating concept if we feel like we haven't heard from Jesus, like he doesn't speak to us. But I think there's some really practical ways that we can try to listen to Jesus, right? Even when we're not on the mountain. When we're on the mountain, it's maybe easier, but there's some things that we can do at any point, whether we're on the mountain, whether we're in the valley, whether we're on that plain where so much of life is spent. Four things come to mind for me, kind of four basic ways that we can try to hear from Jesus. The first is through this book, right? This, this is the written word of God. Jesus is the living word of God and he speaks through his word. And so as we read this word, let's not just read it and say, what does this passage mean? Let's read it and say, God, what do you want to communicate to me? What do you want to say to me through your word? We want to be open and receptive to how God would speak to us through his word. Another way that that we can listen to Jesus is is in community, through each other. We, We are the people of God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And we have a great opportunity to, to be able to speak God's voice into each other's lives. And so we need to listen for how God might want to speak through other people into our lives. We need to listen and be open to that, especially to people who are older and wiser and who have been walking with Jesus for longer because God speaks through community. Another way that that Jesus speaks to us is through our own desires. What's going on inside of you? What do you want? Jesus asks that question multiple times in the gospel narratives. He comes up to somebody, even somebody who, who it's pretty obvious what they should want, and he says, what do you want? Or what do you want me to do for you? 
And there's a lesson in there for us that that as we get to know ourselves, as we get to understand ourselves, as we get to really be in touch with the desires that we have, that 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 is one of the ways through which God wants to speak to us. Now, that that doesn't mean that all of our desires are are, are holy and that that we should follow all of them, not by any means. We're, we're, We're sinful, we're tainted by sin. And yet, the longer that we walk with Jesus, The more we pray, not my will, but yours be done, the more we open ourselves up to the spirit and allow him to come in and to shape and form our desires, the more we can look inside and say, what what do I want, God? How are you speaking to me through my own desires? We've got the word, we've got community, one another, we have our own desires. And and the fourth way that that I personally find it helpful to, to try to listen to Jesus is just through the practice of silent prayer, listening prayer, just sitting, to God, sitting with God in the quiet. I try to start each day this way uh, with some time before you know, everyone else in the house gets up, before the kids are about, when it's still quiet, and just spend some time with the Lord. And there's a number of things that I usually do at that time and things that I reflect on and things like that, but I, I typically end that time just by asking the Lord, is there anything that you want me to do today? Is is there anything that you want to say to me today? And then just sitting in the quiet, listening. Sometimes I do that and and nothing happens, right? Oftentimes, actually, I do that and and I don't hear anything. Sometimes I I have a thought that that comes to my mind that that I, I wonder if this is from the Lord, if he's speaking. Sometimes I have a strong impression from him that, that, that this is what he wants to say to me or this is what he wants me to do today. But in either case, I'm, I'm practicing listening. This is my beloved son, listen to him. Are you listening to Jesus? Are you trying to hear from him? Are you opening yourself up to his voice, tuning your heart to hear him? This is really where the path of discipleship starts, learning to listen to Jesus. We think about those disciples up on this mountain. They've had this mountaintop experience with Jesus. They've seen his glory. They've seen more of who he is. And we might think that this was like a completely transformative moment for them, right? That like from here on out, they were just going to get it. But we see that they don't just get it from here on out. Look what happens as they walk down the mountain. Verses 9 through 13. And they were coming down the mountain. He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah, that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and that they did to him whatever he pleased as it is written of him. So so they're on their way back down the mountain and we can see the disciples, they still don't get it, right? They're they're still confused. They've had this miraculous, amazing, transcendent experience with Jesus and they're still like, yeah, but we just, we don't quite get it. And so they say, Jesus, what about Elijah? Elijah? 
right? Why, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come back first? And they're tapping into this Jewish expectation that Elijah was going to return and that that was going to uh, be one of the ways through which God brought the end. And there's, there's biblical prophecies along this line. And there's expectation that had been built up around these prophecies. And so the disciples say, Jesus, what, you're talking about all this suffering stuff, this death stuff. You're talking about it like it's going to happen soon. Like, what about Elijah? They still don't get it. And as we read through the Gospels, we, we see that, that the Gospel writers would have us identify the return of Elijah with John the Baptist, that, that he is the, the manifestation of Elijah coming back. But by this time, John the Baptist had already been killed. He'd been beheaded. And so Jesus says, yeah, Elijah's gonna come back. John, John the Baptist came, but even his path was one of suffering. Even he had to die. And the disciples, they're trying to wrestle through this. We've got the conquering king here with us in glory. How does the suffering servant fit into that? They still don't get it. They haven't been transformed by this experience. Sometimes we expect the mountaintop to transform us. I don't know about you, but I spend much of my life in kind of the, the spiritual doldrums. You know, it's like you're not up on the mountain, you're not down in the valley. You're not in the storm, but it's not blue skies and sunshine. It's just kind of like gray, it's flat, it's plain, it's, it's average, right? We spend so much of our lives and our relationships with God just in this place that's, that's average. And the temptation in that place is to think, oh, if I could just get up to the mountaintop, right? If, if I could just have this experience of God, man, if I could have been with the disciples on that mountain, surely my, my doubt would just be gone. My, my, my struggle with sin would fade away. My, my anxiety would go away. My, my fears would disappear. If I, could, if I could just get up to the mountaintop with Jesus, that, that would fix me. But the mountaintop doesn't fix the disciples. It, it doesn't radically transform them. Because that's not what the mountaintop is for. The mountaintop is not meant to just radically transform us. The mountaintop is meant to bring us to a place where we can hear the words from the Father, this is my beloved son, listen to him. There's something about the mountaintop that can bring us to a place where we are ready to listen to God. But then that's a lesson that we have to take with us back down the mountain, right? When we're in the plains, when we're in the valley of the shadow of death, can we still behold Jesus and listen to him? The mountaintop isn't meant to transform. The mountaintop is to help us learn the importance of listening to Jesus. So let me ask you again, are you listening to Jesus? Are you listening for his voice in your life? For the truth that he wants to speak into your life? for the areas of challenge that he wants to bring, for the direction that he wants to give to you. Are you listening to Jesus? You know, I, I hope and pray that each of us will have these mountaintop experiences of faith. I hope that we will have an experience of Jesus in power. 
I, I hope that we will get to experience victory and healing, redemption, restoration, reconciliation, broken chains. I hope that all of us get to experience those things with the Lord. But let's not seek after those things like that's going to solve all of our problems. Let's, let's seek after Jesus. Let's seek after Jesus on the mountaintop. Let's seek after Jesus on the plains. Let's follow Jesus into the valley, looking at him, listening to him, being with him. This is what the mountaintop is supposed to help us do. We're in this season of Lent where we're walking towards Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And we're walking here on Sundays through the Gospel of Mark, looking at these themes of suffering servant and conquering king. And as we move closer to the cross, we, we see how these themes go together, both for Jesus and also for us as disciples of Jesus. And this morning, we're, we're going to come to this communion table together. Communion is this remembrance, this reflection of what Jesus did for us on the cross. And sometimes when we hear cross, we just think suffering, suffering servant, that the cross is a place of suffering and the cross is a place of suffering. The cross is the place that Jesus suffered more acutely than any other place. As Jesus calls us to pick up our cross and follow him, there's, there's a suffering that's involved in that. But for Jesus, the cross is not just a place of suffering. The cross is also a place of victory. On that cross, Jesus is perfectly both at the same time, suffering servant and conquering king. The one who gave up his life so that we might live and the one who defeated sin and death as his body was broken. And so this morning we're gonna, we're gonna come to the table and step into communion with our savior who is both suffering servant and conquering king. As we do that this morning, the elements are gonna be passed to you in your seats. It's been a little while since we've done communion this way, uh, but we're gonna pass trays through the rows. First, uh, the, the bread or the cracker, as that comes, uh, you can take that and whenever you're ready, you can, you can eat the bread. Just after that, the, the cup will get passed. And as you get the cup, I would ask you to hold on to that. And once everybody has received it, we'll take that together in communion and fellowship with one another. If, uh, if you would prefer to use the, the prepackaged single serve communion cups, those will be passed with the cups. So you can just let the bread pass by you and wait and grab one of those as it's passed with the juice. When you're done, uh, in, the, in the seats in front of you, there's a little spot you can stick your, your cup so it's not all over the place. Well, I wanna pray for us now as we prepare our hearts to come, to receive, to participate in this act that Jesus gave us. Right? He was in the upper room with his disciples. He, he took bread, he took the cup, he said, this is my body, this is my blood. It's broken for you, it's poured out for you. Do this to remember all that I have done for you. So let's take communion together this morning as an act of remembrance. Jesus, we love you. We are so grateful that you are the God of the mountaintop, that you are the God of victory, that you are the God of healing, that you are the God of glory. 
And we thank you, Jesus, that you did not stay on that mountaintop, but that you went down into the valley so that you could pull us out of the valley and that we could experience life in you. Jesus, as we, as we take communion today, I pray that this would be a formative activity for us, that you would be shaping us through the physicality of this by your spirit, that we could relate to your suffering and experience your healing and your life. Spirit, would you do this among us? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to invite the ushers forward now as we get ready to take communion. See on the hill of Calvary, my Savior bled for me, my Jesus set me free. Look at the wounds that give me life, grace flowing.